if you're trying to expand your total available market, you're essentially rebranding yourself. Oh, great. We're going to speed up how fast people can create mediocre writing. As these tools automate content creation, they are also automating the consumption of the content. Wait, what? How could Harvard Business School have been dismissing product-driven innovation? From Orion X, this is The Marketing Podcast. Marketing has transformed in significant ways. More technology, more data, more social, more blending of arts and sciences, more integrated with every other function, and ultimately more critical to the organization. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Garnett as they discuss news and happenings in the world of marketing, from the boardroom to customer programs. Hi, everybody. Marketing Podcast. This is Shaheen Khan with Doug Garnett, and this is the last episode of 2022. Thanks for being with us. This is also episode number 21. So even more, thank you for being with us. How are you, Doug? I'm doing well, Shaheen. All right. Just so you guys are caught up, we spent probably the past three hours discussing all matter of marketing activities and topics. So Doug, set us up as usual. We had a bunch of topics. What do we want to do first? I want to start with dollhouses today. No, not dollhouses, okay? <laughs> um, yesterday, they released, or the day before, they released a trailer for the movie that's coming out, which is the Barbie movie, and stars Margot Roby and um, one of the Ryans, uh, Gosling, Ryan Gosling. And they released a trailer. And I want to talk about it because I was stunned, and I found that the trailer... Not just because it was good. It was actually a funny trailer. It's, it's uh, you know, nicely done and all that stuff. But what really shocked me is I saw in myself, in you know, my wife, in my son, that it shifted our attitude on the movie. And that's critical. I mean, this is what advertising is all about, right? Is to make a change. And I see a lot of stuff that people go, well, that's a nice ad or that's an interesting ad. But it's rare that you really see one you can say, wait a minute, let's stop and look at this because I saw attitude change. And in this case, both Judith and Jacob, when I said last night, hey, we ought to watch this trailer, they were both like, I don't want to watch a Barbie trailer. Why would I want to watch a Barbie trailer for a Barbie movie? And we watched it, and they're both like, wow, that might be a good movie. And that's a huge <laughs> shift. Anyway, so let's talk about that. Ad was effective. And I like it because I love to see an ad that has a business effect, that is well done and is done in such a way that you can look at it and say, you know, that was some really smart thinking that went into it. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I suppose I should probably, for those of listeners who haven't seen it, I'll just describe it, that essentially they copied frame for frame the opening of 2001 the Space Odyssey. So the whole thing with the monkeys playing on it, they copied all those, but instead of monkeys, and I mean, I've seen a frame by frame comparison, they did the same shots. But instead of monkeys, they have little girls playing with dolls where the dolls are all designed to make a girl into a good mommy. That's the whole point of what dolls used to be. A lot of them were, you know, practice being a mommy. You know, you feed your doll, you, you know, change its diaper, you know, that kind of thing. And then it, it uses that. And instead of a pillar, Barbie shows up. And it's really fun and really kind of compelling and interesting. So that's what it's about. You watched it. What did you think? Yeah, so I watched it, and of course, coming from a little bit of a different background, I thought that I had seen Space Odyssey being copied for several other things, so mm -hmm. I was a little bit curious what their take was going to be. There is a scene in the ad where the old dolls are being smashed in favor of the new dolls that mm -hmm. are going to change the experience, 
And it wasn't just me. There were a lot of people who were thinking that that potentially crosses a line from your brand definition and sweet spot. Mm -hmm. Some people thought it was violence. Some people thought it changes the target audience from, you know, moms and little girls to like mobsters <laughs> who are going to <laughs> gravitate to the to the violence part of it. I, I wasn't thinking that, but I thought it was a very interesting decision that must have been made that that was okay. So that led me to think, why have a movie at all? Okay, I get it. It's like a good launch event. It gives mm-hmm. you a whole bunch of content that you can cater and, and merchandise. And then also, if you're trying to expand the total available market for a product, and it's a cultural product. You're also changing the narrative. And those are all kind of risky things to do. And if you get them right, of course, you will reap the reward. Now, I come to this with more than the average Barbie knowledge, I suppose, in that there's a Barbie movie called Tiny Shoulders. That's a documentary about the new changes they introduced in January of 2016. And I go through that movie with my consumer behavior class because it encapsulates all this stuff about consumer behavior, the cultural realities of Barbie, the individual relationships with Barbie, the and they include Gloria Steinem is interviewed in it uh, extensively. So there's no hiding from the controversy around Barbie. The movie spends a lot of time just simply trying to understand what is it about Barbie that was so volatile. So I come to it with, with some of that. What I've heard in responses is I think that there are a lot of women who will respond well to this because imagine growing up as a girl and your choice is getting a baby doll, in which case your whole thing is training about how to be a mother, which, you know, I mean, I, I'm very sympathetic to the challenges women face in culture. Or, you know, then you, then you have Barbie. Now, when Barbie was introduced, she was pretty radical. Because if you look at it, Barbie has never married. She might have a boyfriend, but he's a little dull. And throughout her lifetime, while Barbie has spent a, quite a bit of time shopping, Barbie has also been a spaceman, been an executive, done all kinds of careers, been a doctor. And that started back in the 1960s. I mean, it's not recent. All along, mm-hmm. Barbie has been, in a way, a woman Breakthrough. of... Independent. Yeah, and breakthrough in that way. On the other hand, those people who are very aware of how Barbie reflects um, social expectations for how women should look, I am not disagreeing with you at all. I think that actually is a real dangerous thing. You were saying that the 2016 changes that they made was, in fact, Mm -hmm. to try to relax that sort of a body image, exacting, unrealistic almost imaginary standards that the original Barbie had. And they started having a collection of dolls that reflected actual human beings a little bit better. Yeah. The sales from 2012 to 2015 dropped by 25%. What this documentary does is they allowed them inside at Mattel as they dealt with this sales disaster they were having on the Barbie line. And that drop was $250 million worth of sales, something like that. It's not insignificant. And so in 2015, they decided they had to deal with the body image issues, and this documentary goes through it. It led to the release of three new Barbie body types in January of 2016, and those three types were curvy Barbie, a tall Barbie, and a petite Barbie. And Mm -hmm. they proportioned bodies for them and made a really significant change. And the documentary covers what a risky choice that was. Because Barbie had been kind of just continuing to do the same thing. And there was a woman who led Mattel for the Barbie line for years that 
saw that they could continue to make loads of money by doing that, and they did it. But eventually, the cultural shifts overtook them. And so in 2016, they did this high-risk cultural makeover of the line, and it turned out it worked. So that by 2021, their annual revenue on the Barbie line is above the 2012. It really worked for them. So it's really, it's interesting. And in watching this, of course, I'm now imbued in all this Barbie history. And what I see is this trailer encapsulates an incredible amount of cultural, emotional connection, especially for women. I looked at the trailer at first is its job is, you know, it's a Barbie movie coming up. Would you think about going to a Barbie movie? If I said, hey, Shaheen, you want to go to the Barbie movie? Your response might be, not really, you know. And for me, it opened me up to, okay, I'll have to look at this movie. It might be good. And that's a huge shift. Do we know if this is coming with new product additions, enhancements, or is this the same product set? Because one of the things we were also discussing in pre-show was what is the role of the product? What do you do with the product, right? Right. Over the years, you were play, you do dress up, you go, Mm -hmm. you know, nurse and mother, and like you were saying, and then maybe you also anticipate that as the Barbie grows, she can go be anything she wants to be. And that's Mm -hmm. like a liberating, expansive thought process there. But there's also the whole digital thing that's happening. So is it the case that maybe Barbie now needs to not only do all of the above, but also be a prop in a video clip or in your Instagram stream, and that's a different use case for the product, and maybe you need that? Is that what's going on? Well, I think that there could be some of that. I doubt if that's the primary driver. I think the driver here is that toys and movies have gone together for 60 years. I mean, they started in the 1960s where G.I. Joe, you get a movie out, toy sales go through the roof. Star Wars, one of the big problems with the initial Star Wars was they didn't do toys right away. In Star Trek, they had real toy problems with it and lost some revenue. Anybody who's interested can go to Netflix and watch the Toys That Made Us series. It's a really interesting series looking at the business of each toy. And they go through each show deals with a different toy, Lego and all these things. But through all of them, there's a thread, which is movies and popular entertainment are really good for building toy sales. So I think it just is a continuation of that. I think it's also fortunate for Mattel, or Mattel's jumping on it, because they really do need to continue to stay ahead of the cultural realities that had been affecting Barbie. So they really need to get ahead of it. And this could also be an entree into the movie franchise, because, hey, we have a character just like Marvel, and let's go turn that into another revenue stream. Well, you know, they did the Barbies in Toy Story were just hilarious. You know, they did a really good job of working Barbie and eventually Ken into Toy Story. And really nice, very culturally sensitive. And, uh, Mm. you know, those were quite fun. So, yeah, I think they've got a, you know, I think it's a good move for them to do that. But mostly, again, back to what I really love about it is here's somebody who paid attention to what's going on with their customers, what's going on with their business, what kind of shifts do they need to make, where do they need to take the company. And so even though creatively, I think it's quite fun, the trailer, it's much more important to me that it's smart business. And I think this is a very smart business trailer. So one notable thing in my head as we were discussing this was really the idea that if you're trying to expand your total available market, you necessarily change the narrative. And that change of narrative in some ways is a change of identity. Mm -hmm. And you're essentially rebranding yourself, whether or not you see it that way, 
And it could be a major way, it could be a minor way, but that was an interesting mm-hmm. attribute of this. Well, and I think actually, as you talk about that, if you look at Barbie as this shift from the dolls that girls use to play mommy to the dolls that girls use to envision what it would be like to be a grown up, that actually isn't new, but it's a part of the brand they haven't been able to get across terribly well. Starting in the 70s with all the criticism, valid criticism, don't get me wrong. With all the valid criticism of Barbie, the noise level was so high you would never break through that. So with a movie, they have the opportunity to take that on. And for what it looks like, the plot may very well follow that. And, you know, deal with Barbie as a way for girls to envision being fully, fully actualized adults. And, uh, you know, so, I mean, as I looked at it, this rejection of the mommy-oriented dolls is going to have a really strong impact with women. And also then, I think there's probably a lot of women who grew up playing with Barbies who are a little shy about it. And in that documentary, they'll talk about it. Like, oh God, I love my Barbies. I really played with my Barbies. all, But I don't ever tell anybody that because it seems embarrassing to do that. And I think there's a potential that what you know, part of what the trailer does is it makes it okay to say, yeah, I had Barbies, which, by the way, I didn't, but uh, I didn't have G.I. <laughs> Joe. But, but also, so. it's not an uncrowded market segment. There are other players. Mm-hmm. American Girl got introduced mm-hmm. in 1986 and has done extremely well. I was going to say, you have Bratz as well, which is a little edgier, kind of a more hip doll than Barbie ever was. Well, we had Cabbage Patch, we had, you know, on and on and on. So we spent a good amount of time on this because it's such a multifaceted and broad discussion from competition Mm -hmm. to buying behavior to product to the cultural, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, go to market, movie franchise, revenue opportunity, really, really Mm -hmm. good case study. So I can see how you use it in your courses. And I wish I could take the course and I recommend others to go do it. So there was another several topics we talked about. Where do we want to go next? Well, why don't we go, you know, last time in our last episode, we talked quite a bit about the CMO role and the fact that really one of the problems with why CMOs don't have a longer life in companies is it's a very difficult role. And that uh, your suggestion was that those who are really good actually do survive. And so it continues a thread of like, okay, so what does that mean? Well, and we have a a tweet we picked up from Kirti in the last two weeks that says, if as a marketer, you are going to your CEO with impressions data and asking for more money to quote her brilliant new boss, you're going to a knife fight with a baguette. Spend more time with your P&L and get to know it better than anyone else. That's how you win respect. What I like about the quote is it sets up this, if you're going to be in marketing, you need to know the P&L. You've got to be thinking, at least, about how what you do connects on the bottom line. If you aren't thinking about that, it's going to be hard to get respect outside of the marketing. Yeah. So, so I had two branches of conclusions from that. One of them mm-hmm. was, like you just said, and like we talked last time, you better know the business. You better know mm-hmm. where the revenue is coming from, what the buying behavior is, where your product comes from, as much about how the business operates as you possibly can. And it doesn't matter whether you're CMO or you're somewhere in the marketing organization. I think really everybody in marketing, no matter what your rank is or your job is, you would benefit from understanding how customers buy, why they buy, et cetera, et cetera. That part, no question about The other part was impression data. 
because now you're talking about data. And now, as we talked in other episodes, data is a proxy to other data, which is a proxy to other data. So there's a data supply chain that ultimately leads to the parameter that you really are trying to optimize, whether it's mm-hmm. revenue or margin or market share or whatnot, right? And the thing is that you want to influence those and you want to measure those. And in order to influence them, you need to go upstream for other data that is proxy to it and all the way until you get to impressions. So impression by itself is not useless data. It's just not data that is related to how the business is conducted. In a sense, what I'd say is impressions are a fair distance away from it turning into profit at some point, whether that's three or four years down the road or whether that's this year. You know, it's a fair distance separated. And I think that her observation is that if all you're doing is throwing around impression numbers, this is how I'm interpreting it. So I've been in meetings where impressions are thrown around as as like, well, we got 100 million impressions. You know, in a company that's thinking, the company says, that's great, but why do I care? And then you talk it yes. through. So, yes. I, I mean, I, and I guess I agree with you that, I mean, we, we ought not be just purely dismissing impressions because if that's all you have to measure what's going on, you've got to start somewhere. So right. I don't disagree with for that. For example, if you go to your CEO with impression data asking for more money, maybe mm-hmm. you better be asking for more money to get better data. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes, that's, that's right. The money I need like, isn't hey, more money in media. I want more money so I can go figure out what this means, you know. Yeah, Yeah. Mm-hmm. exactly, right. Hey, CEO, I've got impression data and it looks great, <laughs> but you know what? I don't know what it means. I mean, as I said earlier, you know, the reality is, okay, so I've got great impression data. The next question is, has that data made a difference? And You won't be able to just find that out automatically. You'll have to do surveys or you'll have to do something to try to dig into, did that make a difference? You know, I was observing, you've got a big, long gap between I've got impressions and somebody bought. But you have to figure out how to peer inside that gap. And that could be done with market research. That could be done with other things. It's just much harder and much murkier. You know, so I think impressions, they're the easy thing. Yeah. And that's why they yeah. get thrown it's kind around of a bookend. too much. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah, kind of a exactly. bookend. And the problem is yeah. the murky middle is murky. Extremely murky and very, very fraught with mislabeling and data pinballing, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. So the next topic we talked about that maybe is the next is AI in general. Oh, yeah. I mean, aren't we? I mean, hasn't AI saved the world yet? Oh, it already oh, wait, has maybe, three times. Maybe it's not gonna... Yeah, that's why we. Yeah, that's why we're still here. <laughs> Oops, I forgot. Well, yeah, consider this last week. First of all, the last two weeks we had the Chat GPT come out and make a huge splash, and all sorts of people running around, you know, posting. At least on Twitter, it was a big deal. A lot of tweets about it and stuff. As you've noted, I think it's GPT three is the one that is more in use. And there's a lot of talk about what GPT-3 is going to change in the world and things like that. And I posted a tweet on the still existent Twitter saying that, you know, very little AI is actually just positioned as a tool. I mean, that, you know, kind of right now, the thing that bothers me in these early phases is the AI is positioned as its intelligence and we've just changed the world. And you and I both know, we haven't been in computer stuff for so long. It's a tool. It's a, how does it help me? What's the algorithm? And how do I rely on it? And where can I apply it? And um, mostly I get particularly grumpy when these things come out without any sense of, so why do I care? Right. So uh, the chat GPT set me off completely on that. Not always fairly, but completely. 
So Yeah, no, I think in agreement with you, they are tools that are of increasing sophistication. Mm -hmm. So, and as the tools get more and more and more sophisticated, and I think ChatGPT was was interesting and got that reaction Mm -hmm. is because it exceeded people's expectations. People didn't think it was going to do as well as it actually did. Now, if when you know started playing with it after three or four or five exchanges, patterns started emerging. They sounded boring to me after a while. They sounded like an employee who's cutting and pasting things rather than really understanding what it is they're submitting. And that, of course, is exactly what the case is. However, it was doing a lot better than before. Some people started saying that, ah, this is actually going to be competition for Google because instead of Googling my way into some kind of a narrative, I can just ask it to go do the search and give me a report. And it's doing a decent job of that first step. I know that within the marketing ranks, we can and are using it as the first or second draft of a blog. You may or may not want to submit that depending on how cynical you are about who is or isn't reading your blog. And there are, in fact, those who do blogs for their audiences, the search engine, not actual human beings. And for that may be fine, but that's kind of where it ends, right? Well, and I think that, I mean, that's that's fair. I mean, I know that as I read the early stuff I read, it struck me as student work. You know, in other words, and I don't mean bad for students, but I challenge my students with, okay, this is great, but what does it mean? What does it mean? Think deeper, you know, look for connections and this kind of stuff. And it felt like kind of first draft student work, which is it had done all the research and assembled it all. But there's no insight in it, and there certainly wasn't much that was anything of a surprise. And for those people who are going to be using it to start blogs, if you want your blog persuasive, you need to surprise people somehow. You need to have something in there that people go, God, I never thought of that, or I never put two and two together that way or, or that. So I, you know, that was my first response to it. So there's a way in which you know the cynical me would say, oh, great, we're going to speed up how fast people can create mediocre writing. And I think it's possible that that's one of the outputs we'll see. On the other hand, I do have to sit back and go, but how the hell does it do this? Because it's kind of miraculous that it has done as well as the stuff I've read. So the other consideration to me was as these tools automate content creation, whether it's text or images or even movie clips at some point, they are also automating the consumption of the content. Because you really could ask ChatGPT to go summarize this text, right? So you could sort of theoretically think that if the text is junk, it's going to get summarized to nothing. It's like, you don't need to read this. And if the text is so pithy and information theoretically pristine, it's not going to be summarizable. It's going to come back and say, the summary is exactly what you gave me. So like, go read the whole thing. But it also tells me that long term, the audience for these bots are other bots. They're not human beings. Mm -hmm. And that human beings are going to be standing around the pool of digital bots swimming together and interacting with each other. And we're not going to have more than a toe in. And that toe is going to be judiciously decided so that we don't waste our time reading stuff we don't need to read. I thought you brought up a really interesting connection with Alexa, because there was also Alexa news in the last couple of weeks since we had our last podcast, which is a big story came out from, it sounds like from insiders and leaks at Amazon, that Amazon Alexa project has just been leaking losses at huge numbers. So they're, I think they're talking that it might lose $10 billion this year. 
you know, those are the headlines. Well, okay. So then you look at it and I struggle a bit because I think Alexa does a really good job at what it does, but I haven't really seen a whole lot of value from it or Siri or any of these, you know, voice assistants. But as you noted, maybe it's a good way to compare to some of these new AI tools that are coming out. Because here we are, Alexa, 10 years after it was invented, and essentially they're still trying to find a way to monetize it. And they haven't found that yet. I do think it's a great case study for all manner of AI. And we are seeing it also in driverless cars that as much as they're making progress, they're still not quite productized. People still get hurt if you're not careful. So it's a more difficult thing than it comes across. And as you go towards full autonomy, it becomes significantly more difficult to do. Mm -hmm. So Alexa is a really good case study in what happens to AI. It's cool in the beginning. It does stuff that is just really novel and everybody wants to touch it and see how it works. But then as the luster wears off and you get settled into the real business, the actual use case that people are willing to pay for that actually work become a very complicated situation. So voice interaction is a long-term thing. And for Apple and Google and Amazon to work on it makes sense. But whereas your interaction with your phone can be a little bit more easier to understand, your interaction with all manner of things, whether it's your washing machine or your speaker or your headphone, is a little bit more difficult to understand and make sure that it's a real need that people are willing to pay for. So I think it's a longer term process. I mean, that you know, the report that came out that I found from Ars Technica talks about how they had a business model internally that wanted to make their money off of Alexa when people used the devices, not when they bought the devices. So they're looking for some way to monetize a usage. What I know of that process was they were hoping to get phone orders through Alexa. I remember that early on, and I have my writing at Retail Wire and other places always said, what? I mean, how can I order that I want exactly a Dyson V11 back, but which accessories does it have, you know, and this kind of stuff. There's also the old joke that when Bezos bought Whole Foods, it was accidental, that he'd actually turned to his Alexa and said, Alexa, get me a loaf of bread at Whole Foods. And Alexa said, buying Whole Foods. And Bezos said, ah, you know. So uh, Actually, you're pointing out another problem with these AI tools, and actually really any technology tool, is that it needs to function well for the use cases that it wants. And, you know, we observe that even with our phone interactions. The text is misspelled, the autocorrect kind of does the wrong thing, and we're not quite there yet where it works extremely reliably for complicated exchanges. But I could see that if your PC is voice activated and you're cooking dinner or washing dishes and you're interacting with your PC and there's noise in the background. So now your interaction with the PC is like with another person. Hey, Doug, I'm looking to buy, you know, detergent. What do you recommend? What do you guys use? And then I know that it's coming from its considered opinion, not just summarizing search results. You say, you know, that's my experience. If you can have that kind of a rich exchange that is reliable, that understand what, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe it can work. Mm-hmm. I thought one of the interesting thoughts that came to my mind while we were talking about this is that right now, Siri and Alexa and these things are essentially command-driven systems. So that That's if right. you want to, like my, my wife turns to Siri on all the time and say, Siri, set timer 20 minutes. 
and then she has a 20-minute timer set. That's truly like the old days of typing commands into a command interface. That's right. So it's really very much like that. The idea of a natural language processing, we aren't there yet. And I don't know how long that'll be. But before we get too far, I want to come back to something you observed that I think is really critical here, which is none of this discussion has talked about when Alexa first came out, it was really targeted as support for Internet of Things. And yet that has fallen away. And maybe that's the real problem for Alexa. Yes, I, I think that Internet of Things was always a good vision and it is going to happen. And I think it is starting to happen. But it was not going to happen in 2018. There were just way too many problems that needed to be solved from cybersecurity to the interactions between your phone and the device and the cloud and mm-hmm. the user interface and the ease of use and actually the use cases. What am I going to use it? Is it really helpful to me? So all of those have been maturing. The platforms are coming. The software is coming. The security is getting done. So I think it is poised for finally. So it's going through it, the, the so-called hype cycle. So it was the plateau of, no, it was it was the peak of inflated expectations. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, that's right. They have peak of inflated expectations and the like. And I think the other thing I think about Internet of Things is if I look through it and say, where does it really work for consumer goods is the Fitbit. And then there's a few other things. But Fitbit works great. Okay, so that's and that's what was part of what got everybody excited was with that. Well, that's a, a use case that rocks, but where are the other use cases? So people have come out with stuff that you know tracks your sleep patterns. I think the value you get for doing that is too small. I just don't think there's enough value there. And so those things haven't really stuck with it, besides it being privacy invasive like crazy. And I think that that's been it has been a struggle. The use case has been a struggle for them, as well as the use cases limited by how the technology has been limited. Just to connect back, though, I think that this question about Alexa, the investment in Alexa, if they were making that investment based on the idea that IoT would be the thing bringing in this ongoing revenue, yeah, they're in a world of hurt. Yeah. And maybe eventually they'll they'll do, like, again, voice interaction is a thing and it is going to mature, but it all needs to work. All right. So there was a quote in Harvard Business Review that maybe we should end the episode with. All right. Here we are. And this is 10 years old now. It's from February of 2012. And it came out of Time magazine and it said, Harvard Business School is shifting its curriculum to focus more on Apple-like product-driven innovation and less on financial engineering. And I read that quote, and I'm like, wait, what? How could Harvard Business School have been dismissing product-driven innovation? I mean, you know, I mean, it goes back, Deming observed, there is no future for a company unless there's demand for its products in the future. You know, that's the core of a healthy company. I don't know. What are your thoughts? I mean, I had an immediate like, oh, my God, it just went kind of ballistic because, in fact, financial engineering is a problem. And there's research between you and me. There's research out there showing that MBA CEOs tend to fall back much quicker on short term financial engineering than CEOs from other experience. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Well, you know, my uh, I thought this was a recent quote. So my initial reaction is was, well, it's about time. But given that it's from 2012, did they do it? Did they actually make that change? And are we seeing results? I haven't been able to really track it. I I haven't been able to figure out exactly what's gone on. Maybe someone of our listeners is more in touch with Harvard Business School and could uh, 
fill us in. Yeah, let us know. Now, my general view is that financial engineering is a valid area. We do need it. It does enable things, but it cannot be done to the exclusion of actual engineering, actual product-oriented things. So it's something that needs to be part of the menu that you can take advantage of, but it cannot be making up for other things. And you're not going to make up for a bad product with anything else. The place it makes me you know, most angry is you see a lot of it in companies managed for shareholder value, where shareholder value, the proxy for shareholder value is stock price. And there's a lot of gimmicks that can be used to drive up stock, sure. price, stock price. You know, For decades, for almost a century, stock buybacks were virtually prohibited in the United States because the SEC saw that they were manipulating stock price, that that's primarily how they're used. And now that we read about Jack Welch and we read about Boeing and you know some of the GE style things that they did, that's it. They're primarily engineering stock price and they have nothing to do with the company. And in both those cases, the share buybacks made the company weaker because the buybacks drained their reserve funds in businesses that were highly cash intensive. And why would you do that to get stock price up? Well, I did that make sense. So some of that, that kind of financial engineering is where things go completely wrong. On the other hand, financial engineering to make sure you're in good shape as a company, I got no problem with that. But that's really the message to marketing people is that the better way to solve all of these things is to get the basics right. Have products people want to buy, have products that deliver value to people, make them available and make sure that they're well done. All right. So maybe on that note, we can end this episode. Thank you, Doug. Thank you to all of our listeners. And thank you for sticking with us for this whole year. Happy holidays to you. Hope you get to spend some time with friends and family and relax and energize for 2023. Thanks, Shaheen. And happy holidays, everybody. Right. Take care, everybody. That's it for this episode of The Marketing Podcast. Every episode is posted on orionx.net and shared on social media. Use the comments section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The Marketing Podcast is a production of Orion X. Thank you for listening.